Welcome to the Make It Work podcast brought to you by the team behind EpicWorks.com. Make It Work podcast is all about technology, product management and entrepreneurship. Our goal is to learn from the best in the industry. Hello everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Make It Work podcast. My guest today is Klaus Hefele. Klaus worked for many years uh, as a software engineer in Japan, Australia and Germany. He's currently the head of engineering at Doctari, where he supports cross-functional teams that match doctors and nurses with the right place to work. Klaus and I met at here while working on here Technologies consumer products, and since then we have gone on to have um, slightly different career paths. Um, Klaus, welcome to the show. Hey, Balach, great to see you. So as I've been following you on LinkedIn and seeing um, the various content that you've been posting, I see more and more um, your growth as an engineering leader um, and um, the the content you posted has been so interesting obviously that um, I would have uh, wanted you to be on this show and I'm happy that we made it. Let's start with um, asking a very simple question. What made you become a software engineer? Right. Yeah, so um, maybe circling back to what you mentioned that we uh, worked together at Here Technologies and I think when we met there, it, I was as a kind of it was a kind of inflection point, right? Like that was kind of the job where I transitioned from a software engineer to an engineering leader, or I decided to uh, take this career path. And yeah, um, of course, I've been a software engineer, and I've always been like interested from a very young age into I don't know how to disassemble things, how to write software. I played a lot with electronics, so naturally some interest in that area um, developed. And um, yeah, you mentioned a few, a couple of countries that I worked in. So I worked on kind of mobile phones in Japan and uh, PlayStation and console games in Australia and um, a lot of iPhone and iOS um, apps, um, of course, when we met and also in different companies. And so that, that's my, my software engineering and uh, technical background. And um, so bit by bit, I kind of grew from a software engineer, maybe to a senior engineer, to a lead engineer, to a team lead, to an engineer manager. And now I'm, I'm a head of engineering. And um, I mentioned, as I mentioned, Tier Technologies was kind of the inflection point where I kind of dipped my toes, toes into uh, team management and what that means and what leadership could be. And at that point, I was still kind of um, um, having one leg in one uh, one place and another leg in another place and trying it out, doing it parallel and soon realized that it's kind of two different career paths, right? And there are so many facets to, to both careers that you can't really do um, both um, at the same time and then decided to move on to focus more on engineering leadership. Was it a conscious choice for you to focus more on engineering leadership? I think maybe initially the draw was of course maybe um, I don't dare to say but may, maybe to, to have a bit more say in you know how things are, 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 are running um, but and I think it was not so much a conscious choice in the sense that I wanted to do engineering management exclusively from the beginning it was more like mm, that sounds interesting let's let's uh, try this out and see how it goes and I can still still be technical um, so I thought at the time right and then but um, a few years into this job I realized how 
complex that can be and how interesting it is and then it was like a from then on um, I'm I'm investing much more time in yeah reading about the leadership and uh, learning about uh, leadership uh, topics yeah. sweet so we're gonna come back to leadership in a second um, now at, at here already um, you had a stellar reputation as a great engineer um, I'm, I'm sure you felt it and your teammates felt it. That's how I knew it because I was in a different team. Um, what is the difference between a great engineer and a great engineering team? Mm -hmm. I think a, a great engineer probably, I mean, engineers are makers, right? I mean, designers are makers or they, they are really hands on creating the product, right? And I think, of course, you develop a certain skill and an experience on understanding, um, you know, how things could be developed so they work well and, uh, yeah, can be easy to maintained and uh, you can develop a lot of features. And I think a crucial aspect is that these days products are so complex that one person cannot do it alone anymore, right? No matter how good you are. I mean, maybe in the beginning, a prototype or something, right? But any complex product needs a team. And um, that's why I think the, the stereotype of this lonely software developer in a corner, I think it's, it's, it's not actually happening anymore because yeah, teams are so essential to, to product development that you would, wouldn't go anywhere if, if you wouldn't develop the skills to, to work in a team. And of course, in the team, you have like certain functions, right? Maybe you have a product manager and designer and quality and engineers and working together with yeah, different personalities. I think that's also what, what makes uh, teamwork so, so, so interesting. Absolutely. Um, products are becoming increasingly complex and um, it's also a lot of fun to work with other people, mm. even if you could do it alone. Um, why wouldn't you? Yeah. So talking about teams, um, how do you organize your team? Yeah, I think there are, there are many kind of different aspects um, to it, but at the end of the day, I mean, we worked kind of in, 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 in similar uh, companies, right? On, on similar uh, topics, maybe not the same, but um, in software products for consumers, maybe also for businesses. And um, of course, a, a software team, usually what's state of the art is a cross-functional team. And I think where this comes from is that, of course, you want to work on certain things in parallel and you want to um, uh, organize your team so they can be as independently as possible. Because if a team constantly, constantly needs to check back with someone and ask questions and get direction, I think you're getting nowhere. Um, so really the, the, the key feature for me in a team is that they are autonomous and have little dependencies on, on other teams or on other services. And this is a bit how I also approach team organization. Like a team has a certain goal to develop something, to, to write a service. And what kind of functions do you need to actually achieve this goal, right? And as much as possible, it's not always possible, but as much as possible, you then get the right people together in this team um, to, to, to work together. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think the, the key point is um, forming the team around the goal, right? And having having all the right skills in there. So being an engineering manager, um, in a way, you get to judge your team and yourself almost on a daily basis, right? Um, what makes the difference between a high performing team and a not so high performing team? 
yeah for me it's it's always about a, um, a balance of trust and accountability i mean now that that many teams and people work remote i think uh, trust has come to the forefront you know of of something you need to have in a team because um, whoever thought micro management would be a good idea you know it's it's not going to work in 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 office and it doesn't work in remotely um, uh, completely completely breaks in in a remote setup so i think trust is important um, that team members and also the manager trusts um, the people but there's also you know a flip side to trust which is accountability in the sense that you know i take the responsibility of taking care of something you can rely on me and you know i come back to you if i'm blocked or um, you know to report on you know what has come out of our agreements right and for me this is kind of the two the the balance that that makes these high performance teams to to have this right balance between you know i'm going off we agreed on something i'm going off to do it and also you know i'm coming back to you and you know discussing uh, where we uh, where we are right now to decide on what's the next step yeah it's on the topic of accountability it's it's something that i'm deeply interested in because for me in a way it is the core component of a growth mindset right where you where you take responsibility for yourself and and of course in collaboration with other people it becomes highly important um is that something you can teach people or how do you foster that in in a team setting or is it something that you just hire for and um if it fits it works if not you let go yeah in 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 my opinion like i mean accountability also also has a lot to do with proactivity right i understand mm-hmm. what needs to be done you know i'll uh, follow up um, by myself you know i'm proactive about solving solution growing and uh, developing uh, uh, products and um my saying is that if you know if you treat people like children then you don't have to be surprised if you get a kindergarten and so it's a bit like the the environment that also trains people on how to react right and if of yeah. course if you worked for years in an environment that always told you what to do then suddenly you are kind of trained on this and saying hey i don't expect um, to decide myself i'm just waiting for something to happen right and right. so 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 my experience is that of course it's a bit of personality but more it's 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 determined by the environment and it's it's um it's it's possible to change but it's it takes quite of time quite a bit of time because people need to get used to this new environment on and these new ways of working mhm um have you had to face this challenge and if yes how did you deal with it yeah that's a that's a good question i mean when i'm looking at my current teams um there's certainly let's say um a team that is a bit more um proactive and a team that's a bit maybe more um uh, passive it's also a bit to do on i think there's a difference between consumer products and um maybe business products or internal products for internal stakeholders right like i think if if you work on consumer products um i mean they are not coming to you to tell you what to do right you have to actually reach out proactively so i think with the consumer product you kind of expect this kind of ways of working where the whereas with a internal maybe if you have internal stakeholders you more expect hey someone is um, gathering for us the requirements and telling us what to do and then um yeah you have to give more and more kind of leeway to people you have to say hey 
Um, you can't just throw it, them into the pool and say, hey, from now on, hey, you, you are going to put um, proactive. You have to you know, change the environment bit to bit so they can adjust and also take more and more responsibilities. And for me, a key factor in this is to um, stop talking about features. Hey, we need to deliver X by Y. And instead talking about goals, right? Um, this is the outcome we want to achieve. We want to be quicker in signing up contracts. We want to have more users, right? And with these outcomes, there um, uh, people developed a natural interest in, yeah, I, I have some ideas, right? I can imagine some solutions. And so bit by bit, kind of they are, they are moving more towards these more proactive um, uh, ways of working. Right. So as a product manager, um, I'm somebody who's very interested in product goals and outcomes and whether it's a B2B or a B2C product, um, you, you have to be able to formulate those goals and um, um, it relates to the strategy and um, we, we create roadmaps. Um, in fact, I started my company, which is a roadmapping software as a service. Um, how do you interface with, um, with the product people? Uh, and how do you bring those goals or translate those goals into engineering goals? Um, is that something you do? No. Yeah, that's 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 always interesting. And I think it's also um, depends a lot on your ways of working. If you follow Scrum or maybe Kanban or you have a different uh, kind of setup. But um, I always felt it to be a little bit strange if there's the product owner and the development team. Like for me, the team is, you know, both both functions um, together. And mm -hmm. that way, um, kind of, there is no translation or interface necessary um, because they, they kind of work on the same thing. Of course, they have different specialties, right? And um, you have a product specialist and uh, maybe an, uh, someone who specializes in, in what to do and what has the most value and someone specializing in how to do it. Um, but there is no translation or interface necessary. But it depends a lot of also on the setup. I, I experienced like product managers and owners that are a bit more strategic in the sense of they want to be with the customers. They want to, you know, develop the big vision and hey, um, uh, team, please, you know, translate that into a product that, that makes sense. And then I've seen product owners that are very tactical in the sense of, hey, my life is the backlog and I know every ticket and I write every ticket myself and I move it around. And, you know, it's, it's very, maybe also a bit dependent on the personality of the, of the, of the product um, person. So at the end of the day, you know, both can work. I think it's also a bit um, setting up the expectations, right? That you make explicit on how you want to work and agree on how you want to work. And I think that's also a way to foster proactivity, right? If you make it explicit that you expect someone to do something, I think it it, it helps to create this sense of ah, that's that's my job. Let's let let's work on this. Right, um, I totally agree with that. I think I think people um, working together um, and having one goal rather than a goal translated into individual KPIs or mm. specific uh, team KPIs already starts to um, kind of um, dig at the roots of cross-functional teams. Um, mm. However, um, I do see this happening quite often. And um, one particular example comes to my mind. Um, I was working with a company where 
at some point we started working on um, creating a roadmap because um, they had grown organically and they were successful but they never felt the need to create a roadmap um, and when they did that was for board meetings and it was a roadmap mm. with a slide with um, 100 items on it and, and you couldn't make head or ta tail of it uh, and nobody paid attention so when we actually started talking about what are the product goals and let's focus mm. the roadmap around that um, one of the interesting things that came up was um, the CPO uh, suggested that we should also have a technology roadmap or a engineering mm. roadmap um, and as I dug further, what I realized was that the product person, because they were not technology oriented, they always mm. talked about the features before that. Uh, and on the technology side, things like um, test automation or um, 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 cloud infrastructure needs, uh, you have monitoring and automatic restarts mm. of certain services. Those were neglected all this time because the product mm. owner did not have that mindset. Uh, mm -hmm. And there was nobody taking that um, that action on the engineering side. Mm -hmm. um, and so they came to the conclusion that we should have two roadmaps. Um, mm -hmm. And um, my reaction was, but it should all be a product roadmap with input from engineering. Mm -hmm. When I tell you this story, what comes to your mind? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think yeah, having two separate roadmaps, right? And then maybe even kind of fighting against each other, I think. That might not be a, a good idea. I mean, when you develop um, a functionality and achieve a goal, I think you always have to factor in certainly certain certain technical developments and certain technical improvements as well. I mean, I do understand at some point there will also be, especially in the infrastructure part, you know, there will be some stuff that doesn't directly pay into some product features, right? It's very indirect that you have to set up, I don't know, cloud infrastructure that you can then use for product development, right? So there are certain parts that are very technical, but I think maybe 80%, 90% should be factored into the product development. And and that's why you have a cross-functional team, right? That you have the, the aspects of different, uh, you have kind of different points of views, right? That come together to one goal rather than hey i'm following this goal and this roadmap and we are following that role and that goal um, roadmap i mean that always causes uh, friction have you had to deal with this friction and have you had to educate your counterparts um, on mm. also um, things that you would want to do as, as as an engineer or as an engineering team that they just cannot see but you see them benefiting mm. the, the product, uh, whether directly or indirectly. I think most product owners that work in teams, in software teams, kind of have an implicit understanding. I mean, maybe they don't exactly know how it works, but they have an understanding that they don't invest in the technology at some point. If the foundation is not here, the house will break down at, at some point, right? And outside the immediate team, my experience is that it very much depends a bit on on the company organization you know sometimes i mean we worked at a company that had kind of engineering and product completely separate up to the c level right and then i see some maybe some smaller companies it's more like one ctpo perhaps um, in a smaller group that kind of is responsible for both right and then sometimes it's also maybe people are more like a CTO and also manage product. And maybe sometimes people are more like a product person and also to manage technology, right? And so it's quite interesting how things change and em the emphasis changes 
um, depending on how the the organization um, works. But I think that the key is that product and engineering is kind of the yin and yang of product development, right? Like um, if you don't, this this must be super integrated because if that doesn't work, um, uh, uh, it's it's not gonna gonna happen with your product. Indeed. So switching a bit to leadership, but before we talk specifically about it, um, what makes you come alive at work? I think um, one part that is super um, uh, uh, makes me super happy is also kind of achieving something or completing something, right? That, you know, the, the feeling that you get when, you know, you worked hard for something, um, it was very difficult, you spent weeks on it, but then it all comes together and you kind of have maybe the first release or this feature gets rolled out into production, I think. This is what I kind of um, working for, this kind of accomplishment um, uh, part. And what's what's really important for me in this in this sense is also that um, that people celebrate these accomplishments, right? Like um, um, often when um, I mean, usually it's a high pressure job, you know, um, it's always um, too few features, too few releases, you know, too few this and that. And I think also taking the time to say, hey, now we actually made a step and this step was great. You know, that's creating a warm glow, I think, also for a lot of people and um, especially people like we who kind of um, uh, yeah, really enjoy this, this achievement accomplishment part of, of work. Would it be right to, to say that you are more of a hands-on engineering manager um, as compared to somebody who's only managing people? Um, not anymore, I would say, because I think the, the risk when you come from an um, engineering background is that you think, hey, you know a lot of things and uh, that's how, how, how things need to get done. And then you get into micromanagement. I think that's a, that's a risk. But, but soon you realize that, you know, you, you are not up to date anymore. I mean, you, you, you keep in touch with technology, right, but not on a detailed level. And you soon um, don't know the exact details anymore. You also maybe manage functions where you don't have a background in. For example, I'm, I'm from mobile app development, but I also manage teams that work on back office systems or on back end and infrastructure um, services, right? So you cannot be, and I don't really want to be anymore, the specialist for everything. And I see myself more as a facilitator kind of helping people to make the right um, choices, the right decision, making sure that we consider the context and, um, you know, all factors that go into this decision. Um, but I don't need to be the specialist anymore and, um, you know, knowing everything. So I'm, I'm, I think I developed um, an approach where I still understand the problem but I'm not involved in more at all in actually um, uh, solving the problem. I'm more involved in yeah, finding solutions and uh, facilitating decisions. Right. So you already answered part of my next question. So being an expert mm. uh, or a domain expert is not necessarily mm. part of the um, skill set of a leader. Um, but what, what other skills do you use or are you developing um, to, to do well at your job and um, to serve your teams best? I think the, the background in technology is helpful for me in the way that um, it supports me understanding the problem. So if people say, 
mm, I'm, I'm not getting any further, um, that I can dig deeper and understand, hey, can you show me where you get stuck? And then develop kind of support or solutions that, that unblock people, right? So um, because I've seen a lot of things and I can understand what's, what's, what, what's happening. And um, this is maybe where the technical part helps me, but of course it's also, um, you know, about maybe managing conflict, um, giving people feedback. And what at the end of the day also ends up on my plate a lot is like, um, we mentioned how teams are should be autonomous, but there's also um, always some dependencies between, right? So between the gaps or, maybe support structures that are come between teams. That's a bit more my my domain where I can also be a bit more closer um, than the day-to-day -day, um, proceedings in the team itself. Right. Um, um, the, the other part of the question, um, in a way we are already touching on this, right? So you have certain skills uh, um, mm. where you have deep uh, expertise um, mm. or prior experience. And then there's all these adjacent skills you, you need. So mm. conflict resolution or management, feedback culture, etc. Um, are these things um, that you also try to encourage within your team? Are you helping mm. them upskill in some way? No, no. Um, I mean, th this changed over the last few years as well, because um, I used to be an engineer manager and then mostly um, uh, um, responsible in supporting one team, right? And now as head of engineering, this role changes again because yeah, you're responsible in supporting multiple teams, right? And usually each team has a, a tech lead or a team lead of some sort. And um, this is something super interesting, what I kind of tried to, to learn a bit more about in the last few years, how, how can you teach leadership? You know, what are the aspects and what kind of formats are helpful for people um, to to um, uh, gain their understanding of leadership. I mean, coaching and, you know, mentoring is a lot part of it, like in one-on-ones, but I've also been interested in, you know, what kind of kind of internal workshops or maybe even classes um, can you develop to yeah, teach certain aspects of uh, leadership. For example, what I've done is um, hiring is, of course, always a, a, a huge part in, in, in any tech organization. And um, I've developed a workshop and a kind of a setup that worked for me. And I'm now kind of teaching that internally, you know, let's do a workshop together. I show you what's important. And that's then developed um, a custom hiring pipeline, you know, for, for your team. And then, then use that to, to be really good at, at hiring. Right. Um, what other activities are you are you doing or promoting within your teams? Now I'm thinking, and um, you mentioned achievement and recognition earlier. Um, mm. uh, is there some specific format to that, or mm. hackathons, or other mm. team events? I mean, um, hackathons are cool. Um, I sometimes feel maybe they shouldn't be kind of, um, um, uh, you know, the. the I think product should be um, or working at your company should be fun, right? So it shouldn't be, um, hey, our work is really hard. And by the way, we do hackathons and that's the fun part, right? So I'm, I'm focusing a bit more on, you know, creating a fun environment or an, an interesting environment. And, um, and, and again, for me, I mean, there are different personalities, right? For me, there is this 
product vision, these goals, these achievements is very important. That's a bit what I'm focused on. But I also totally understand that other people, they say, hey, we are motivated by, you know, learning cool technology or we are motivated by, you know, doing something together in a, in a weekend. And that, you know, motivation works differently for different people and you have to make different offers in, in terms of motivation to different people. And um, yeah, that, does that answer your question? Um, that, that was kind of part of it, right? Yeah, yeah, more or less. Um, one of the reasons I ask this question often is, uh, is I'm always interested in also how concretely people are doing different things. Mm. Um, so, um, and, and particularly the topic of hackathons was interesting because I was um, um, uh, talking to the company that I'm consulting with, with mm. and we were talking about hackathons and how to organize them that it, it, be mm. it doesn't become exactly this thing of that is the only fun part uh, and mm. then the rest is drudgery. Um, and in fact, um, I've experimented with hackathons with product managers mm. as well. So it's it's been a um, some of these specific practices, um, feedback mm. rounds, or um, particular team events um, tend to help quite a bit. So feel free to throw those in if if more examples mm. come to your mind as well. Um, mm. I want to switch also to um, behavior change. Now you have been interested in behavior change. Mm. Um, I'm not going to say anything else. I'll let you talk about how that started and uh, what yeah. comes up within that. I think that that connects back a little bit to what I mentioned about teaching maybe other others how how leadership works. And I've realized that um, a previous focus for me about in learning was always about knowledge. You know, read a book and go through a training and build knowledge, build knowledge, build knowledge. But I think what learning actually is about, it's a combination of knowledge and also changing your behavior. By changing your behavior, that's how you kind of prove that you kind of, you know, understood it and can actually use it day to day, right? And I'm always trying to put these two things together, right? Like um, hiring, yes, you need to have the knowledge on what is the best approach or what would I recommend. But then you also need to develop the habits of, you know, for example, um, putting feedback always in the ATS, right? So that we always, that HR is always up to date on what's with the candidate or create the habit of, you know, um, um, asking, um, um, actually having good criteria and actually asking for those criteria in the interviews so you can get feedback to um, candidates, right? And that's why I'm interested in this behavior change and habit formation, because this is really where kind of, yeah, the practical implementations of knowledge um, is, is happening. And um, yeah, I've, I've, with this way, I've come in, the, um, come in touch, uh, came in touch with a particular kind of brand or book um, called Tiny Habits. And I've been trained in this method, which I found a really pragmatic way to kind of change habits and set up habits. And that's a bit what I'm, I'm using in my approach and also in my workshops and, and uh, trainings. Sweet. So mm -hmm. talking about tiny habits, um, what habits mm -hmm. are you changing or have changed in the past few years? Pretty much every time I, I I learn something new, I try to set up a habit and then see how that develops if I can actually turn this behavior into a habit. Um, for example, th simple things, right? I, I, I read about a communication method 
Um, if someone comes to you and talks to you about something great that happened in their life, how, how do you respond? And it turns out that um, maybe some, there are some better ways and some uh, worse ways to answer. And um, maybe some worse ways would be, um, hey, um, great that you had this um, achievement. By the way, I also had another achievement that I'm talking about, right? So kind of deflecting from, from uh, that person's um, uh, great news. And a good way or better way to respond would be to ask more questions, to be interested in how they actually achieved this um, uh, um, accomplishment. And that way you kind of build relationships, right? If you come to me and say, oh, I made a new release of my product. I'm so proud that I found this company. And then I ask you a question. I'm, I'm really interested in your learning. You know, how, how, how do I find a, a company? How, how does it work actually? Where do you get the funding from? Or was it really hard? And then suddenly we build a relationship. So I, I formed the habit of if I hear something, after I hear something good, I ask, um, tell me more about it. So every time someone in a daily um, uh, says something good, maybe I, I kind of encourage them to, to talk more about it. And um, yeah, that, that's one example how this works. And another example might be, um, yeah, I'm, I'm reading currently about resilience and optimism um, because we seem to get from one crisis to the next crisis, right? Like. Um, uh, climate, climate, uh, catas climate crisis, Corona, Ukraine, war in Ukraine. And I think resilience and optimism to, to keep optimistic despite all these bad things happening is, is I think, critical also to, to your mental health. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, I'm, I, I'm going through a training in Coursera about positive psychology and they are teaching certain methods of what would work on uh, resilience. And then kind of I assembled kind of a, a habit recipe, I call it, you know, um, if you always think about, you know, one person is guilty or one organization is guilty, um, then I'm reading a bit more about the background and develop um, different perspectives, right? So I kind of set up different habit recipes that um, help me, you know, reconsider what they call thinking traps, you know, that you think, hey, um, you are always the problem or I'm always the problem or, you know, everything will be destroyed or I can nothing to do about it. That's kind of certain diff um, thinking traps that keep you pessimistic, but to keep you optimistic, they're also strategy to help, you know, understand what you could do about it and then building different habit recipes, you know, to, to keep you going. Right. I want to come back to resilience and positive psychology um, in a bit. Mm. Um, you gave a great example um, how to how to deal with positive news. Um, how mm. about bad news? How how do you deal with with a situation mm. when somebody comes to you and they are distraught and and mm. in a difficult situation or something terrible happened to them? Yeah, that that's interesting. I'm I'm not sure. Um, I found a perfect um, answer yet, but I think that there's a balance to do because on the one hand, you want to console that person and also, you know, make them feel heard. At the same time, if someone has a negative experience and reliving that negative experience can sometimes, you know, um, strengthen the feeling or make the feeling worse, right? And as I said, I'm, I'm not sure I have a good answer to this, but I'm, I'm trying to be a bit intuitive about, you know, what that person needs Do do they, you know, just let off steam, perhaps, do they maybe need to reflect on this on, on how this happened? 
or maybe you know are they are they quiet right now or don't want to talk about this right now and maybe I can pick this up a bit later so I'm, I'm not sure I have a good approach to this but um, in, in this case um, yeah I think you have to be listen a bit to your intuition what, what, what might be the, the the best approach fair enough and what you're saying kind of points also to to emotional uh, intelligence right um, to, to be mm. able to modulate your responses uh, according to the situation mm. Um, is that something that um, that you're consciously cultivating in yourself, um, or do you have anything mm. to say about emotional intelligence? Yeah, I mean that that's an, uh, an amazing approach, and I think it's kind of been proven that it's you know very necessary if you um, uh, if you get to a certain skill level that to develop further you know you need to develop emotional intelligence it, it's totally teachable right and learnable I mean, to some degree and i think the way i think about emotional intelligence that is kind of a, you know first of all it's about self-management right like you need to understand your feelings and how not to control them or suppress them but how to how to deal with feelings at the end of the day feelings are signals that tell you something you know something is off or something is is good and how you have a choice on how to react on them right if you if you are trained in kind of um, uh, monitoring your your feelings and then of course it's also about empathy you know how do you how do you receive feelings from others how 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 do how do you understand the feeling in others, how, how, how they, from their perspective, how, how they feel. And then it's maybe to have the kind of skills to kind of um, bring this together in a, in a communication or in a, in a discussion, right? That you understand yourself, you understand the other, and also how, how, do, I, what I, how do I build a relationship out of this and, and something uh, uh, positive and, and good. And yeah, it's, it's probably something you never stop learning, but it's, it's certainly interesting also to spend quite a bit of time on, on, on this part of um, emotional intelligence. Now, these are topics that, um, that a lot of us, um, let's say, become aware of through painful experiences, mm -hmm. right? Oftentimes we, we go through life without knowing much about it and repeating our own behavior patterns driven by our mental mm -hmm. models and something happens and kicks us into um, awareness sort of. Um, hmm. How did you come come to this? Um, were you always this hmm. kind of a person? Were you always interested in how do I deal with people um, and and hmm. started picking up these skills, or did something happen? No. I don't think something particular happened, but I think it's fairly natural progression that um, if you work with a lot of people in the leadership role that you uh, develop a natural interest in psychology because at the end of the day that's what you're working with right um, psychology of um, of uh, of humans and uh, um, yes it's nothing big happened but over time kind of an interest in this kind of um, developed and then um, I'm reading more and more about these topics and less and less about technology topics or even though I'm of course I'm keeping up to date with it but that's a bit how yeah I got in this um, behavior change kind of topic. Uh, we mentioned positive psychology. Um, I've done recently um, a very interesting mental health first aid class where it's also a bit you know about um, people might have mental crises, how how you can maybe help until you know a professional arrives, this sort of thing. And there's so many interesting topics to to learn about uh, human behavior. It's it's. 
it's kind of a yeah never um, ending stream of of interesting things yeah. absolutely um and i'm so happy to hear um that you're spending so much time and in investing so much in your development mm. i think that is something often goes missing in workplaces um mm. Uh, if the individual themselves is not taking that initiative, often we hire mm. somebody and we just assume that they're going to stay that good mm. for the rest of their lives. Um, mm -hmm. Are you also encouraging this for your teams or offering these kind of um, things to your team? Yeah, I think I, I wish I could. Like for, for me, the best setup in a company is if you have a budget where, hey, this is X amount of money. Um, please spend it on yourself to um, buy books, trainings, um, uh, get into uh, coaching or whatever. I think um, at the moment I can't offer this kind of setup, but that would be for me kind of ideal because, you know, it helps people be proactive and because people need to understand it's actually their career, right? I mean, um, a company and, a, and a, a leader has to set up the environment so they can develop themselves, but it's not a company's responsibility to build your career. It's, it's your career, right? And um, yeah, and I think with a certain liberty and freedom also comes, you know, trying out things. I, I think I, I've, I've certainly wouldn't have done a few things if, um, you know, if I didn't have the means of, you know, just trying out if, if I like a few things or if the training is helping me, right? And so you develop or push a bit the boundaries of what you already know. Okay, so let's go back to resilience. Um, mm. What is it and how do I develop it? Yeah, so resilience, I guess you could say it's it's bouncing back from um, a bad situation, right? Um, like we cannot always prevent from, let's say, an accident happens or, you know, the war a war happens. We cannot always change these situations, but if they happen to us, how do we kind of bounce back to be optimistic or to yeah be positive in in in, in our life and um the, the course i'm taking what they are talking about are these these kind of five thinking traps um i hope i can remember all of them that you know always they are um are, they are the sole responsibility for this problem i'm the sole responsibility for this problem um, I'm totally helpless. There's nothing I can do about it. And there were two more thinking traps that I unfortunately forgot. <laughs> but this is a bit like, you know, being um, uh, aware of these kind of thinking traps that they could happen. It's basically also kind of bias, right? That you maybe some think you know, catastrophizing is another thinking trap that you think, you know, things are actually worse than they really are. Um, and if you're aware of them, maybe you catch yourself doing them and then you can actually work on some strategies to, um, to work, um, work towards positive change. For example, you can say, hey, um, you know, um, give an example. Let's say I'm helpful. I can do nothing about the war in Ukraine. And think about actually the examples where I can do something, you know, donate money or um, yeah, donate clothes or help people. Um, get a new job or house people for for a short term of time, right? So, and then suddenly, ah, oh, actually, I can do something about. It. I can't change everything, but I can do some parts of it. Or making yourself a plan on, um, for example, with catastrophizing, everything will be, uh, you know, there's violence everywhere, or things will be uh, really bad, and everything is bad, and you're saying, 
No, I'm actually finding examples where maybe something could happen to me. So the wonderful Balach um, invited me in his podcast, right? And then saying, ah, maybe not everything is bad. And, and of course, it's not about negating the bad things that are happening because they are bad. And, and you also have to acknowledge this. But it's also to keep a balance and to also say, okay, despite all these bad things happening, I'm actually having also a few good things that keep me in a in a in a balanced mental state. Thank you. That, those were some great examples. Mm. Um, what I understood, um, especially from the from the first three uh, as well as the fourth mental trap, it it's it very much sounds like black and white thinking, right? It's mm. it's either mm. my fault or mm. completely yours. Um, either I can solve this problem or nothing can be done. Mm. Um, and sometimes I, I see that um, at work as well. Oftentimes people will bring opinions, um, you know, on, on all levels. Either we do this thing, we launch this app or nothing. Mm. Um, either we have test automation or nothing. Um, mm. um, um, either we fix this bug or we don't fix any. Mm. Um, and, and there's often a lot of this, um, this one way or single story mm. way, of, way of thinking. And I, I think what you're saying is, starting to take perspective and or mm. being able to take perspective and not negating if there is something mm. bad but being able to work with it is the way to go um, mm. how do you practice this um, is it something mm. that you kind of um, as you're doing this course I'm, I'm assuming you're not going to mm. wait for the next catastrophe to happen where you then pull out the book and practice this is this mm. something that you do on a daily basis do you practice mindfulness mm. or what goes into that yeah, I mean, part of this uh, tiny habits method is that you create certain habit recipes that you then have um, available to you, you know, when you need them. So unfortunately, we have a lot of crises going on at the moment. Um, so, you know, um, I mean, a habit is also a behavior that change that that happens regularly, right? If, if um, it only happens one year, it's probably not a habit. It's more like, you know, day to day. But then, for example, like doom scrolling, you know, like um, going through your Twitter feed and seeing a lot of negative um, uh, uh, messages, you know, you can set up yourself a habit, you know, to kind of reconsider after a while. Hey, I'm scrolling maybe five minutes afterwards. I'm thinking about if I want to continue. Right. And, and right. these kind of habit recipes you have maybe available because you set it up to yourself, um, yourself. And um, that kind of helps you practice this when when they when they happen. And coming back maybe to to what you said about this black and white thinking is I think people underestimate that small changes lead to big changes. So usually there is kind of this thinking. Yeah, maybe a, a simple example about test automation, you know, Unless we have like hundreds of tests, this is totally useless. So I'm not even starting to write the first test. But actually, you should say, no, let, let's let's write a simple test and maybe just have one test. But then, you know, this quarter, but then we actually have have one. And people are sometimes, you know, making two big steps and that stops them from starting. And I find this can be so um, uh, uh, relieving to say, hey, I make a small step and that's fine and that's totally good. And then suddenly you see, ah, actually it can a second small step and bit by bit you kind of um, change the situation. I absolutely agree. Um, one of my most favorite sentences these days is uh, between zero and 100 is 99 steps. Um, 
and mm. we need to take them one at a time. Um, yeah. So thank you for sharing that. Um, now, c talking about positive psychology, so other than um, mm. the habits, um, how much of a role does positive psychology play in mm. all of this? And, or do you make it also part of the tiny habits? Mm -hmm. yeah, so um, I think tiny habits and positive psychology are related in the sense that um, kind of to to build a behavior into a habit um, you celebrate your behavior and that's kind of what keeps it going and yourself remembering to do with the behavior again and again and positive psychology um, what this is about is um, the realization that even if you solve all the problems let's say you have no illness whatsoever it still is not a guarantee that you feel great like you know, taking away problems brings you kind of to a neutral state, but right. to make you feel great, there is something positive that needs to be there as well. And I think that's that's very different to my experience in companies. Let's because always like feedback and performance review and uh, product discussion is always what problems are we solving? You know, this failed, so we need to be better. And there's always kind of the focus on the negative. And what I really like about the idea of psychology is that it's actually turning this around and saying, hey, what is actually working well? Can we do more of this? Um, and, you know, people, what, what are your strengths? Can, can we actually use your strengths in a, in a, in a better way? Right. And this is a, is a much more positive, optimistic um, uh, outlook on, on things. And something I also have been missing for a while because as I said before right if if you solve all the problems also in your life it still doesn't mean you feel super happy and great and yeah. there was always something missing and I uh, positive psychology kind of gave me a bit of a clue what 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 that could be mm. so on a group level um, celebrating um, and mm. rewarding oneself um, that would apply on an individual level as well um, uh, how, how much role does gratitude play um, in this? Because mm. um, I've been hearing a lot about it and I've read a fair bit about kind of keeping mm. a journal and this habit of mm. uh, three things I've, I'm, I'm grateful mm -hmm. for today um, mm. tends to make a difference. Is that something you practice or is it part of uh, the story somewhere here? Yeah, yeah. yeah that's uh, kind of a well-known maybe um, 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 intervention, what they, what they call this, right? Um, that before you go to bed you reflect on your day and write down three things that went well that day and um, it's kind of proven like in a scientific sense that um, people who do this kind of really um, improve their their mental health and feel uh, much better right and this is also a bit the part about positive psychology that i really like is that it's usually or it's nearly always evidence-based right they actually do tests with people to actually do this behavior and then see does it make a difference to people who don't do this behavior right so it's it's kind of a scientific um, um, method to it and for example one one behavior um, that that is also mentioned in this tiny habits book is that after I put my feet on the on the floor I say this is gonna be a great day and uh, they, they call it the Maui happy. Maybe in Maui, they, they are all super happy or so. But this is also a fantastic way, you know, a, a kind of mindfulness approach, you know, to 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 say, yes, this is a this is going to be a great day. And um, maybe this is always um, yeah, um, helping you to actually uh, make this happen as well. 
Yeah, it's it's amazing how um, we can prime ourselves, right? Because um, in a way, we're always mm. thinking, and if you're always thinking negatively, mm. of course, that that hurts um, and has mm. impact. Um, and a bit of that positive thinking, even if it feels fake mm. in the beginning, starts to change mm. um, how how you think for the rest of the day. And and I, I want to emphasize that it's really not about you know. Um, um, negating um, negative things because they, 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 you have to acknowledge them, right? It's, it's really not about this, but you can change, you know, you can change how you react on things and, and um, also keeping a certain balance between positivity and negativity. Um, I think I once read that um, uh, something negative that happens to you is, I, I, I think, five to seven times stronger than something positive. Like remember it more easily. That that's the way kind of um, people are, um, yeah, kind of um, wired up. So to keep a balance, you know, we have to put a bit of focus on on positivity to to keep that in check. Yeah, that's that's an important point, right? So um, we are hardwired to spot danger, um, um, mm. and danger in the modern life is more about um, I'm going to miss my flight, or I'm not going to find parking, or um, my proposal will be met with uh, rejection at the meeting, um, and of course those things um, last a lot longer in our memory. And, and I think the the corollary to to this thing that negative events are five to seven times more likely to be remembered. Um, and, and also have that proportional um, impact in terms of their length of staying with us. There was something that in order to cancel out a negative um, um, experience in a product, you mm. need about 13 positive um, experiences. Um, oh, and, wow. and that is crazy. Um, but mm. it all goes back to, to how we are hardwired to be. So mm. we are kind of coming towards the, the close of the podcast. And um, I want to... Um, sort of um, notice that we talked about mm. so many different uh, skills as a leader, um, how you work with people, the, the feedback loops and positive psychology mm. and all of all the things that we mentioned, almost nothing has to do directly with engineering. Um, mm. And it's fascinating to see that um, in a way, when you get to the leadership roles, it becomes mm. all about people. Mm. Yeah. Would that be a good way to think about this? I mean, of course, there is always, um, I think, let's put it this way, there's always too much of a focus on product and technology and too little on people. And I think that's why I'm investing more and more on the people side to kind of yeah balance balance this off. And what you're saying is true, right? Like um, on yeah, the higher up um, the leadership levels you go, the more you actually, it's important how you work with people and how you can build relationships. Yeah, it's more, no more important. And of course, the assumption is that you have experts mm. who are already experts. Yeah, so yeah. it's not about <laughs> teaching them how to do their job, but um, to facilitate. Yeah. yeah. Cool. So um, at the end of the podcast, um, last question. If you had a giant billboard and millions of people would walk past it, what mm -hmm. would you write on it? Ooh. I think I would maybe ask the question like what what was good in your day, right? Like um I think we talked a lot about how usually um everything is focused on the negative part and there are so many crises and I think really pushing pushing this idea of you know there are good things happening even if they are small and you know 
keep people on saying, hey, I'm, I'm reflecting on today and maybe there was something good that I really enjoyed and keep that in, in memory. So, yeah, what was good in your day? Perfect. Thank you for that, Klaus. Uh, and thank you for this wonderful hour with us today. Thank you. Yeah, it was a joy to talk to you. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Ciao, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Make It Work podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, feel free to like, comment and share. If you also want to make it work, stay tuned for more episodes.